Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the final Academy of Ideas uh, Education Forum of 2020. My name's Harley Richardson. I work in education publishing, parent of a 16-year-old who's uh, about to decide which A-levels he should do. So maybe he should be here tonight as well. Uh, and I'm also one of the forum organisers. Uh, and it is great to see so many new faces tonight. Uh, so for those of you who are unfamiliar with the, the forum, what we do, um, we meet a couple of times every term. We try to grip, get to grips with trends in education in a rigorous uh, but collegiate fashion uh, where disagreement is allowed and not taken personally. Uh, we also organise the Education Strand at the annual Battle of Ideas Festival, which was postponed this year for reasons uh, I guess you can probably guess. Uh, but will be taking place as soon as possible. We have a monthly column in uh, Teach Secondary Magazine. So if you're in school tomorrow, if you're a teacher in school tomorrow, look for that in your staff room and see if you can whip a copy to read at Christmas. Now, uh, this event tonight, uh, Exploring Head and Heart by David Goodhart. Um, it began life as an idea about running a little a reading group for education forum regulars to look at this really interesting new book, um, uh, Head, Hand, Heart, The Struggle for Dignity and Status in the 21st Century. Uh, we thought we might get a couple of, a uh, few of us along for a cosy Christmas chat, but before we'd even sent out a message to our mailing list, uh, people had spotted it in our Eventbrite and tickets had started uh, flying out the door. So it seemed like something about this book has struck a chord and, and that people want to get to grips with what it says. Uh, so we rethought this event as uh, more of a public discussion. Uh, so if you've read the book, that's great. Uh, we look forward to hearing what you think about it. If you haven't read the book, that's fine too. Uh, I'm sure you'll have something to say on the themes that emerge uh, during the discussion. So uh, David Goodhart, he's a journalist, uh, commentator, former director of a think tank Demos. His previous book, uh, The Road to Somewhere, introduced the categories any, anywheres and somewheres to the political lexicon and helped many, including myself, make uh, sense of the events of the last five years, or at least a little bit more sense of them. And now he's back uh, armed with another memorable distinction, uh, this time between head, hand and heart. And I can tell you now I'm going to get the order of those mixed up. Um, at least once during this uh, session. Uh, so Goodhart argues that over the past two or three decades, education and society have become too focused on the head, uh, cognitive activity thinking at the expense of the hand doing and the heart caring. And this has encouraged more and more people down a narrow academic path, culminating in a university degree and a desk-based job. Goodhart argues that this has also devalued other important practical and social vocations with profound consequences for mental health and political engagement. For so long, education has been seen as the answer to all society's ills, but now Goodhart claims it is producing lots of overeducated, underused and frustrated people. So that little summary is only scraping the surface of the book, but thankfully we have a great speaker tonight to help us navigate its contents. Gareth Sturdy is a former school science teacher and apprenticeships tutor, now working as a physics advisor. He's also a co-organiser co of the Education Forum, like myself. And Gareth's going to give a 10, 15 minute introduction to some of the main themes of the book uh, and may no doubt throw in a few views of his own. 
with the scene having been set, we'll open it up uh, to all of you and we'll have a discussion about it. But just before we get going, uh, we have an announcement from Mo Lovett of the Academy of Ideas. And Mo, I'm hoping you can unmute yourself. Uh, yes, I can. Thanks, everyone. Um, uh, so just a little announcement from Academy of Ideas. Obviously, Harley mentioned we weren't able to do the Battle of Ideas this year and we haven't been able to do very many events at all, but we, we have been busy. Um, um, our project, which we are launching, have launched just before Christmas, but for 2021 really, is a, a project called Letters on Liberty. Uh, it draws its, its inspiration from the kind of uh, traditional radical pamphleteering of the 17th century, 18th century and onwards really. Um, so we're um, publishing a series of letters, small letters, really, all around the kind of theme of liberty, letters on liberty. That's not a mistake. We thought very carefully about that title. And um, we'll, we'll continue to publish throughout 2021. And we are looking for contributions. But just to say we've launched with three. I'll put the details in the chat. And they're available to download from for free from our website which I'll also put in the chat but they're also they're very beautiful actually I've just seen the finished products have just arrived in the office they're very beautiful like a little um very short introduction type size pamphlets um uh with um illustrations by Jan Bowman if anybody knows Jan very beautiful book so you can either download them for free or uh, purchase them for two pound and obviously we would welcome that contribution to the Academy of Ideas and um, as a Christmas offer, we've got a bundle of three for five pounds. So thank you very much. Thank you, Mo. Um, so uh, and Alex, I think oh, you will. Uh, Alex Standish, who is on technical support this evening, um, has just put the link to that in the chat and um, it will be posting some other links which you might be interested in to uh, throughout the session. So uh, thank you, Mo. Um, let's uh, hear now from Gareth. What do you think about the book? Okay, uh, well, hello everybody, and uh, thanks for coming along this evening. I hope you can all hear me. And uh, if you haven't muted your microphone, perhaps um, perhaps you could do that for the moment. Um, so, David Goodhart, as uh, Harley was saying, he was the founding editor of Prospect Magazine, uh, leadership of the demography unit at Policy Exchange, um, directorship at Demos, uh, recently appointed amid controversy as Commissioner of the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission. So as he freely admits, he is part of the class which is the focus of his critique in head, hand, heart. Um, the book follows in the tradition of uh, the sociologist Michael Young's dystopian satire, The Rise of the Meritocracy, and Daniel Bell's The Coming of Post-Industrial Society and Charles Murray's Coming Apart, or as Goodhart identifies, works from a socialist, centrist, and a conservative. Um, Goodhart says that his book wasn't inspired by the uh, pandemic, but he has done very well to include references to it throughout. It feels very contemporary. So the book's divided into four parts. Our Problem, The Cognitive Takeover, Hand and Heart, and The Future. Um, several people have observed that what he's writing about, the place of the vocational in society, is not an educational issue, but an economic one. And this is partly true. But what the book is about is the intersection between, on the one hand, different kinds of knowledge and their place in schools and beyond. The instrumental purposes to which education, particularly higher education, 
is put to in our society, especially the credentialising role of exams. Uh, the function of education in creating democratic citizens and the part played by education in creating a new type of elite. So in other words, the very themes that this education forum has been discussing over the last few months and years. So I think Goodhart's book is worthy of our attention because it addresses these issues partly from a perspective that many forum regulars might share, but also from a position that we might find challenging. So, uh, as Harley said, over the next 10 minutes or so, I'll present a brief precy of the book for discussion. Maybe later I will give my own personal thoughts on, on the issues it raises. So part one, our problem. Um, in this section, Goodhart sets out his argument very clearly. One form of human aptitude, cognitive analytical ability, as he calls it, the talent that helps people to pass exams and then handle information efficient, efficiently in their professional lives has become the gold standard of human esteem. And those with a generous helping of this aptitude have formed a new kind of expanded, expanded cognitive class, a mass elite, uh, which now shapes society um, in broadly its own interests. They have passed through the same funnel of higher education and then into the top quartile of professional and managerial occup occupations. To put it more bluntly, smart people have become too powerful. In the 1970s, most people in rich societies left school with no qualifications at all. And as recently as the 1990s, many professional people lacked university degrees. Now, says Goodhart, we live in a partially hereditary meritocracy, an achievement society, which has replaced one system of domination by another. A meritocratic society, he admits, has a lot to uh, be said for it, and he distinguishes between meritocratic selection systems for highly skilled jobs and a meritocratic society. The problem lies in the undervaluing of everything that's not cognitively complex. Western rationalist philosophy, he argues, has tended to privilege the mind as the source of immutable truth and understanding and look down upon the body as the source of irrational appetite and inconsistency. All too often, cognitive ability and meritocratic achievement is confused with moral worth. Head abstraction and detachment increasingly dominate our culture. High cognitive analytical ability correlates with success in the knowledge economy and support for the modern virtues of individual autonomy, mobility and hostility to tradition, the opposite of parochialism. Goodhart links this to the Anywheres and Somewheres thesis of his 2017 book, The Road to Somewhere. Now, I won't go into that here, but maybe if we aren't familiar with that too much, we can get into that in the discussion. Um, it's the undervalued embodied skills of hand and heart that promote the kind of belonging and attachment, he says, that characterizes somewheres. Meanwhile, many university degrees, especially in the humanities, are not so much about what you know, but are a signal to employers that you've got certain attributes. He predicts that what we're reaching uh, is peak head, in which the knowledge economy is oversupplied with head workers, while hand and heart are in increasing demand, but in a system that's not set up to deliver them. 
And he points to the rising post-industrial disenchantment, as he calls it, in which the educated feel let down by their education because it doesn't deliver, while voters who don't share the interests of the cognitive classes will increasingly exert a driving pressure on politics. Goodhart then concludes this first part of the book by considering the arguments about what cognitive ability actually is, how it is measured, how innate it is, and what it means for meritocracy and social mobility. And this section includes a really fascinating contrast of the views of uh, Michael Young, who I referred to earlier, um, against those of his son, Toby Young. Um, and that, that uh, contrast perfectly captures, I think, the tensions between our era and the past. In the second part, the cognitive takeover Goodhart maps out in some detail the historical emergence of the cognitive class in Britain and the US and describes its methods of selection. He argues that our quasi-meritocratic education system, above all in the modern university, has become the main distributor of status and position, and that this has become its chief purpose. He differentiates between valuable intellectual inquiry that's neither signalling to employers nor vocational, and he gives the example of a friend who studied Kant for a year at university, but could not now write a coherent sentence about Kant, uh, but who recognises that it helped him to think, a kind of intellectual gymnasium, as he puts it. He points out that education is currently a cultural good in this sense, but also an economic investment for society and a signalling arms race that sorts people into different occupational streams, uh, and that's the credentialism. He raises the question of those who didn't or wouldn't get much out of the school equivalent of studying Kant. It often doesn't do much to help them, but it leaves them baffled and feeling inadequate. Worse than that, it also excludes them from that credentialism arms race and automatically sorts them into low status occupations. So if post-16 education is just about preparation for university, but yet not all should go to university, then what is post-16 education for? And what should happen in pre-16 years old education to facilitate and make meaningful what happens after the GCSEs? It would be better for both individuals and society if the arms race could be called off, he says, and access to such jobs restored to conscientious school leavers, as used to be the case. It's not that we're investing too much in education in general, but too much may be going on signalling efforts for the high level exam passes, not enough on the vocational, professional and technical skills that most of the population and the economy need to flourish. Uh, he quotes uh, the book Diploma Democracy by Bovins and, and Weiler. Um, the idea that success in school was the only road to achievement was absent in the 1960s. Many people who failed in school succeeded later, while the idea of success was broad and varied. So by making academic achievement the only gateway to success, argues Goodhart, we're shutting out some of the most talented future leaders of, say, our police force, legal profession, civil service and private enterprise. Goodhart states that the academic higher education sets the tone and priorities for the whole of the education system. Uh, he says the child-centred teaching style, which took hold in the 1970s and 80s, 
uh, and downplayed drilling and practice and the acquisition of specific knowledge in favour of uncovering pupils' innate talent and creativity and uh, learning through general thinking skills such as decision making or critical thinking, um, they may appear to be uh, hand and heart uh, based education, but he claims that they did not help those of middling or below average ability. And according to the Sheffield report of 2010, about 17% of pupils still leave secondary school in the UK functionally literate and enumerate. So the end of this second, second section of the book contains a brilliant section called Diploma Democracy, which asks whether politicians should resemble and reflect the views of the people they represent. And he then paints a picture of the kind of technocratic depoliticization, as he calls it, that results when the subject at the heart of the educational project is presumed to be of the cognitive analytical kind. It also contains some fascinating reflections on how the arts and language itself suffers under the dominance of the philosopher kings of this new cognitive elite. Uh, part three, Hand and Heart, comprises two chapters. Whatever happened to hand is an analysis of the decline of the skills trades and the shift away from hand in both earnings and respect and status. He talks about the sharp decline of shop classes in US schools in the 1980s and 90s. These were high school programs teaching practical skills such as carpentry, metalworking, and they're increasingly rare now. And he argues that it's often through learning practical skills that people can more easily grasp abstract scientific and mathematical ideas, learning that through learning how, and that the practical is an avenue to grasping the theoretical. He describes a friend who's training to be a teacher and how uh, they illustrated this fact when they described trainee teachers in college grappling with issues of lesson planning and behaviour management in theory. He and some other teacher colleagues had been thrown straight into school and knew about these things from direct experience. And their one day a week in college with the full time students learning about synthetic eclecticism seemed comically irrelevant, says Goodhart. He points out that the proportion of people in routine jobs who say they're not free to describe how their daily work is organised is increasing to around two thirds and connects this to Marx's theory of alienation. With declining relative pay, less meaning and autonomy at work, the realisation that as a non-graduate you're denied access to the higher income, more prestigious jobs above you, declining status of non-graduate employment is a major social fact. Is this status loss an economic or a cultural phenomenon, he asks. It's a combination of the two. There has been a shift ahead and away from hand, both in what society rewards in hard cash and in the less tangible and quantifiable matters of respect and status. And this chapter is followed by Whatever Happened to Heart, which contains the same kind of analysis for the caring professions. In the concluding section, Goodhart looks to the future. He describes the imminent fall of the knowledge worker through there being less room at the bottom and increasing automation in an age of robots and AI. There are two fundamental reasons, he says, why cognitive ability has become so central to status and reward in modern societies, 
The demand for more highly qualified professional people with above average levels of competitive ability. Secondly, appointing, promoting and rewarding people according to their competitive ability seems fair. But this fairness is qualified by the fact that cognitive ability is partly inherited, that the IQ tests and exams we use to measure it may not be fully measuring what we want them to measure. The cognitive jobs get rewards and status, however, that place them too far above everybody else, and the people in them do everything possible to then help their children join them. In the final chapter, he makes clear that the triumvirate of head, hand and heart are usually interlinked, or they should be. The problem is the narrow rationalism, for example, in dataism, practiced by a class trained to value the abstract and analytical above other types of thinking. He references Ian McGilchrist's The Master and His Emissary and admires Gilchrist's theory of how abstract left brain thinking has usurped the more humane but less propositional right brain. Diagnosing the current state of Western society as chiefly a crisis of meaning, he issues a call for the promotion of cognitive diversity, as he calls it, particularly in politics, for rationality as opposed to rationalisation. He seeks greater non-academic and arts subject involvement in schools, proposing everyone in school to have learnt at least one manual or technical skill by the age 18, perhaps under the pupillage of a local master. The focus on raising the academic floor for all young people in secondary education, says Goodhart, has been at the cost of breadth of education. Many forms of creativity can be taught as rigorously as maths. He ends by contrasting intelligence with wisdom and suggests that it's the latter that should be the focus of our education system. And he suggests that wisdom is a synonym for the harmony of head, hand and heart. Excellent, Gareth. Thank you very much. That's a brilliant distillation of the main points of a, of a book, which if anybody's read it out there, you will know it's absolutely packed with, um, with not only statistics, but, but view, interesting views and, and uh, historical sp uh, spread of education over the last few last couple of centuries um, that's led up to all this. So uh, brilliant. That's a, that's a great start. So now we're going uh, to hear from everybody else. Um, I'm going to, uh, and to do that, uh, hopefully most of you are familiar by now with how Zoom works, but if you're not, um, if you'd like to speak, uh, you need to look for the participants button, which is often down the bottom of your screen, but maybe somewhere else. And if you click on that, you should see a list of the participants. And at the bottom of that, you should see uh, something that says raise hand. If you want to, if you want to, like to speak, um, do that, and uh, I can see you want to speak, and we'll we'll get through, uh, get get to you in a minute. Uh, and just, I'm going to say what I always say at these events is that um, our discussions, it's not a Q and A for Gareth. Um, we're here, keen to hear what people um, think, their observations, objections, half-formed thoughts, uh, questions, uh, whatever. It's all, all welcome. So. Um, 
I've got one person, but I'll just uh, got a few more things to say. Um, oh, you can also contribute via, via the chat if you like. Um, and we've had some quite lively conversations in previous forums in the chat. But uh, just to flag up that it's very difficult for, for me and Gareth to keep track of that while we're uh, also uh, running the event. Um, so if you've got something interesting to say, we really encourage you to say it, raise your hand and say it out loud. Um, so uh, and. As Gareth uh, alluded to, um, the book touches upon a lot of uh, themes that we've we've tackled at the forum really since I joined about a decade ago. Um, and uh, I know in the past members of the education forum have argued uh, such things such like there is no such thing as an academic child, that university should be about knowledge for its own sake rather than careers, that everyone should go to university. So I'm very intrigued to, to know what um, people will uh, say about this today. Um, so uh, let's see, we're going to go to Sheila first. We'll take a few people, hopefully, and then uh, come back to Gareth for his points in a minute. Sheila, if you'd like to try unmuting yourself and uh, go ahead and speak. Hello, thank you so much for that. I just had a couple of, couple of comments and then um, a, a kind of question or a doubt, maybe. Um, so I've been involved with construction and architecture for many years, and I've always been interested in how this plays out in that sector. Um, and I think over the last 30 years, as well as a discussion about the actual skills in that sector, and um, I've started actually researching this myself um, in the, the degree I'm doing at the moment. Um, but also, I think it's really interesting how all of our plans for cities, because I've been involved in city development, so everything about how cities are shaped has assumed that most people are going to work in an office in a city centre and everything about this knowledge economy has actually transformed what cities look like. And we're now living with some of the consequences of this mistake or a set of mistakes. And I just wanted to highlight that. Um, and I think it's become very contemporary discussion because it's been a long time coming. And in a sense, there's nothing new about it. You know, that there have been discussions and crises around this, this practical skills needed um, alongside the idea that everybody should go to university for some reason is not a new discussion. But in recent years, it seems that we've got policies that have indeed sent loads and loads of people to university. And the consequences of that for those who are sitting in university now who shouldn't be there is really painful. It's you know I've got personal experience of this with my 19-year-old son having just packed in university literally yesterday. So I feel quite emotional about it. Um, and then I suppose the the question, rather than more comments, um, I suppose if this has been a long time coming and there are lots of different aspects to the the intellectual debate about it. Um, then what, what do we think about policy changes? And I mean, there was an announcement from Boris not so long ago that was lauded as some enormous change to further education and higher education. But if this has been coming for 30 years since Tony Blair, then how long is it going to take to unpick it? Um, because it's, it's really, really in so many ways gone in the wrong direction. Um, and it, I, I just feel this, that, you know, if we've we've actually even built our cities around this idea, physically built them, um, university campuses are enormous aspect, amounts of real estate. 
So the edu- I just wanted to throw in those other aspects alongside the actual core education debate and, and thinking about how, how quickly can we stop this uh, Titanic, you know, and how can we turn it around? Uh, that's an excellent question. Um, and uh, your comment about um, offices um, reminded me of um, the fact that as I was reading the book, I came to mind quite a lot of times um, uh, Richard Scarry and Busy Town, people may be familiar with, where, um, you know, the, the children's books where there's, uh, you know, it's all about how in town, uh, the different people who and jobs that make up the town, policemen, um, post uh, postman, or the whole range where you think if the modern version might just be, you know, everyone sitting at a desk. Um, so, the, I mean, and... and um, I think the question about university is really good. Um, and I keep wondering, um, you know, I'm very interested to hear whether people think uh, Goodhart's diagnosis is accurate and correct, particularly, um, you know, his, he treats universities, I think, um, as if uh, they're the same now as they were, in, say, 50 years ago. I mean, apart from the fact that there's more of them. Um, where you know, I think we've discussed at the education forum a lot that there's actually been some profound changes in what's taught at, edu- at universities um, in recent times, and actually um, the uh, vo- you know with a, a big, much greater shift to vocational um, education. So is the is the university uh, as the endpoint of um, the, the sort of uh, funnel for for young people? Is that the problem, or, or what universities? Are t- universities are teaching so um we've got toby lined up to speak uh next um go for it toby unmute yourself and you have the mic hi uh and and thanks for that introduction it was uh really useful um sketching out of it i mean i suppose my response to the book was initially to sort of bridle against it um and to want to uh defend intellectualism um as something unique that schools can help foster um but i tried to kind of stop myself reacting in 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 that way uh and just think about some of the you know some of the issues that he does he does raise and i suppose i whilst i would want to defend the specialized function of schools uh and i think he discounts too much or doesn't pay enough ten, uh, attention to the content of education and knowledge uh I think that's an important flaw in the book. Um, I do think it is frustrating as a teacher that um, maths and science has become the measure of knowledge and the activity of schools. It does feel that there's an unhealthy preponderance and emphasis on that. And there are other forms of knowledge. Um, And, you know, one of the things, uh, so there's there's an unhealthy weighting I think, in the curriculum and in the education, which isn't to devalue maths and science. They're absolutely pivotal human achievements to which everyone should be given access and a rightly huge amount of social resource investment in engaging people in these very complex forms of symbolic representation. Um, I would want to defend a position of intellectualism against Goodhart whilst accepting that, you know, there does seem to be an overly narrow focus um, within education um, on particular forms of knowledge uh, which policymakers understand um, but actually knowledge you know comes in many diverse forms and I think we should be a bit uh, open to that um, and and that's particularly manifest in 
um, the privileging of certain forms of assessment, which Cathy and I, you know, I, I defend examinations, but they are one form of assessment um, and, you know, others. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I got, uh, I, I wouldn't want to close down a discussion of, or, or uncritically accept how we, you know, the pathway that we've gone down. I think in the book, it's important to set, try and separate cause and effect. I mean, you know, the valuation of persons and particular forms of labour strikes me that the key thing there is the destruction of unions in our society um, in terms of, you know, why workers don't have much of a say or valuation in society. That seems to be the obvious thing since the 70s um, to, and to be more positive than he suggests. And I think the things he, he describes are often an effect of it. Um, and I suppose if, if I was to kind of offer a critique, maybe, you know, um, there's a kind of, it does feel a little bit patronising what he's saying, you know, valuation. Um, you, you know, I don't want valuation or power, uh, you know, or I'm not looking for the esteem of other people. So, um, but, but anyway, you know, it's an ambitious and impressive book and that was a great introduction, Gareth. Thank you very much. Cheers for that, Toby. Um, and uh, we're going to go to Sh Shirley Laws now. Um, go for it. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, I, I haven't read all of the book, but what I've read, I've really found interesting, quite challenging, and certainly made me think. Um, but and that was a great summary there, Gareth, and thanks for filling in a lot of the, the gaps for me. Um, I'd want to just take a bit of issue about this cognitive takeover, though, because it seems to me, um, I mean, apart from anything else, historically, if you go back to um, the, the sort of mid-1980s, well, from through the 80s and 90s, um, where there was a, a, a real sort of um, shift, at least I think a real importance of, of a lot of people around, people like Richard Pring, for example, uh, talking about parity of esteem and wanting there to be a real, um, you know, recognition that 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 the the hand and the heart are, the, are as important as the head. Um, but what happened wasn't I don't I don't think it was particularly a triumph of the cognitive or a cognitive takeover, but more of a collapse actually. And a, one of the collapses was the collapse of the used labour market in the mid nineteen nineties. There weren't any jobs around. And so further education, it became a youth containment project, really, to use um, Dennis Hayes' expression. Um, and and the, the notion that for post-16 education that wasn't academic was skills, good, practical job training was actually lost. But at the same time, opening up the universities meant that what has happened is that the vocation, much more of a vocational orientation in universities, but that has is empty, actually. I mean, we talk about, you know, uh, looking towards career and employability is used an awful lot in universities these days. Um, and and for at the same time, further education is not doing, if you like, not fulfilling its, its practical, proper training for jobs mission universities have, have really lost the plot in terms of being a knowledge in as knowledge institutions and so what we've ended up with is something of a mush really 
So I, you know, I would just, I would just take issue with the, there being still that distinctiveness because actually I think there's been, you know, you've just universities have lost the plot and further education equally has lost the plot and kids are left actually really victims in this actually, really and truly. Yeah, there's a, I think, thank you, Shirley, there's a point I think in the book, I was trying to find it earlier where, um, uh, Good heart says something along the lines of, you know, people go to your people go to university and they don't learn job um, skills that will help them in the workplace and they don't get a rich liberal education that tells them about the world. So it's the kind of mush that you're, you're talking about. So, you know, is the answer to that? And I'm not sure that Goodhart really tackle, addresses this at the end. Um, is the answer to that to sort of find that liberal education um, mission again? And, to, and, and, and is that then something that we aspire for everyone to have or, or, or is it to, you know, um, to you know, improve the, the, the work side of the, the, the sort of vocational side of things or something else? So um, I'm going to take uh, Sally and Ian and then we'll come back to Gareth and then we've got some more people lined up. So Sally, please unmute yourself and speak. Oh, hello. Well, I'm one of those people who actually does work in further education. And I've been doing so for quite some time, and I teach a practical subject. Um, it's me to blend space, it's filmmaking. So, um, when I first uh, worked there, which I, um, someone else said, one of the other lecturers said that basically what we were providing was a band aid for the students. And, you know, you have a huge mixture because we have some students we've even sent to Cambridge. I mean, it is massive. And then we've got other students who basically are just about managing to cook. You know, I'm saying this because it's the honest truth. Um, you know, there is this this massive, massive range. And um, what I would say about this is that I was wondering, I'm just putting this out as a question. When I originally went to film school, which was in the late 80s, it was extremely expensive. It was vocational. I went to a polytechnic, which was actually had very, very high standards, not only academically, but also practically. It was 50-50, that course. I'm just wondering whether this isn't about money, because quite honestly, if you go to a, um, a university course and you're writing essays, and especially now, of course, we know there's COVID and all this, online essays is a damn sight cheaper than running an engineering department or running a proper construction department, or in my case, a proper filmmaking department in those days, which, you know, yes, we were working with film and all the rest of it. And it takes technicians, it takes studios. If it was a proper engineering department, that takes a lot to build up. It's a lot more expensive than simply to have seminars and, uh, well, you know, the, the, the kind of archetypal academic education. So I do wonder whether money is also quite a large part of this. Um, I don't know. I mean, um, yes, and, and, you know, the former speaker, I would agree. Um, however, some people really do do well. I mean, I, I've got to say that students where I work, most of them, they absolutely love it. It's, uh, you know, it's a place where they're making friends and all this kind of thing. And um, 
yeah, I can't, you know, further education as much as I too am critical about what a lot of what is on offer. Um, there's also a, a great deal of good that goes on with it socially, in fact, as much as educationally. And talking and to back to David Goodhart. Who is to say, and I personally think it's very important, those relationships that you create at that time in your life, you know. Um, I Anyway, I, I mean, I just think it's a question. Anyway, so now what they're not doing in further, in the, what's your further education is they're not, that they sort of, the pennies drop. The students realise that actually going to university, you, you could be working as a security guard, you go to university, you're still going to be working as a security guard at the end of three years. They know this. So the penny has dropped. So basically, most of our students now want to go and do an apprenticeship. But the trouble is that really a Proper apprenticeships, as I'm talking about, you know, where you've got really people who are very experienced and all this kind of thing, it's not really happening that much. Anyway, that's all I've got to say. So that was that was some great stuff. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Ian, we'll hear from you now, please. Hi, right, good evening. Um, and, and thanks, Gareth, for the, the summary, is brilliant. Um, I've got a question, really, um, which I'm wondering if I'm confused or there's a contradiction in Goodhart's book. Um, I'm wondering with this cognitive class that he's calling it, is it is it the kind of people that are getting into it too often who he thinks are not intelligent enough and are, are, are somehow bringing down this uh, data processing uh, industry <laughs> or... Is it that the very idea of it is flawed and he's he's considering that this cognitive class is going to implode in on itself anyway because they're generating maybe pointless data which isn't of any great purpose and its days are numbered. And it was, so I suppose really I became very interested in this idea of dataism as a as a belief system in itself that you you believe in the data regardless of what it's really telling you um and, and i and i wonder if that's if, if if he's saying that in itself is the problem or or is it that there are just too many people would it would it be a better system if more intelligent people were in it that was my thinking thank you cheers um so, Gareth, we're going to come back to you now. And I don't know if you're, uh, you saw, but in the chat, Alex uh, asked the question, Has, how does Maslow fit into this? Now, I don't personally know who Maslow is, so uh, I can't answer that one, but maybe you can. Um, we'll see. Gareth, are you there? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Sorry. Uh, yeah, Alex, I'll... Um, I'll <laughs> Goodhart doesn't refer to Maslow, so I'll see if I, in the next round I might be able to shoehorn Maslow in, but um, I confess I haven't necessarily thought about that yet. Um, I don't actually want to speak for too long because I could, and I probably will. But uh, these contributions are are great because essentially I don't know what I think of um, of Goodhart's argument yet. You know, I've, I've I read the book and I kind of uh, sort of brought it to the forum with the idea of 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 getting a range of a, you know a, a set of uh, uh, cognitively diverse. Um, opinions but um i thought i thought toby's uh, point 
well series of points was 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 really good um because i like you I'd, i want to defend the unique thing that a, a school has in terms of pursuing intellectualism um but at the same time i think goodhart does make a really really strong argument actually um of the emergence of this kind of uh this this new class and i don't know necessarily if he's accurate on all points but um it definitely you know there's there's been a lot of um writers looking at this kind of uh, issue lately i'm i'm principally thinking of michael lint and the new class war and he's doing a, a similar kind of analysis on, on predominantly american society i think was it was it joel kotkin or something was talking about the new clerisy you know and and then there is goodhart's previous work on the anywheres and and, and somewheres and i haven't really had the, the opportunity to to kind of really go into it this evening but um whilst i want to defend exams and i want to defend academic education and i want to defend the intellectual certainly i'm beginning to wonder if the distortions of that whole debate by the emergence of this uh, rather conformist overeducated often good for not a lot class that seems to hold the status in society i wonder if the distortions that that provokes are 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 actually making the whole project project of education just more and more difficult if you like the, what is the culpability in education of of creating this elite layer in society that that isn't doing anybody any good um to address uh, ian's point there on um why are their days numbered goodhart certainly does go into great depth about that um he his main argument is essentially that there's too many of them for the kind of role they perform and that role is getting squeezed all the time through a variety of factors but chiefly through autom- automation and ai um, and it's capitalism in the age of robots i think he calls it um and uh, no matter how smart these people are the kind of skills they have are less and less in demand um I thought Shirley's contribution was was uh, really good in 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 sort of fleshing out that that problem, which I think I think she's right that the the universities have given up on what they're supposed to be doing, and FE's given up on what it's supposed to be doing, and it's the whole thing's fallen between um, two stools. And and um, I think that Goodhart isn't very good really at at looking at the intellectual content of of what school is is supposed to be about. And doesn't really seem to follow that through into higher education either. Um, he doesn't seem to have a convincing vision of what a university really should be. Although he does, he does sort of knock Newman's Newman's the, the, the purpose of university or whatever it's called. You know, he has a sort of pop at that. So he's not quite a knowledge for its own sake kind of guy either. Um, Sally, great, great contribution as well. Thank you, Sally. And I, and I actually do agree to an extent that it is about the money in FE. Um, I've, I've just come from working from work-based learning, so not quite FE, but in apprenticeships, and really struck by how much of a racket that's become. And Goodhart touches on this in the book, the fact that uh, training, education, skills have been passed on to a, um, 
a commercial sector, very little employer input, really. Um, and the proliferation of, of a sort of Byzantine number of different types of qualifications and levels and funding streams and all sorts has just been a kind of gift to those that want to make money out of the system and to commodify it. Um, and it's done nothing really um, for, for improving the quality of apprenticeships, uh, which he contrasted with the German apprenticeships and the German model, which is completely different and, um, and is a much better system. Um, I said I wouldn't go on and then I just did. Okay, I'm going to sh shut up there and hear some uh, more. That was great. Thank you. Um, and uh, you, you mentioned um, a bugbearer of mine, which is the, the phrase over-education, because I always think, um, you know, how can you be over-educated? Uh, you know, partly because I'm a believer in the liberal education. and Part of the idea of that is you learn about the world uh, with no particular sense of um, necessary sense of where that might take you. And the, the idea is that it opens you up to possibilities and you, you can't tell in advance necessarily what might come of that. Something might come of it, hopefully, often it does, um, but it might not. Um, and to, to talk about over-education is to imply that there's just the right amount of education, um, and that usually implies knowing in advance what you're going to do with it. But I don't think, um, I've, been, I've been thinking about the Goodhart's take on it, and I don't, I don't think it's over-education really he means. He means, he means the wrong type of education. He specifically says it's about um, taking on a certain sort of set of views, which are part of this sort of picture of being part of the cognitive elite, um, so on, on various aspects of life. Um, and also the fact that um, he doesn't talk about this so much explicitly, but I think it's, it's the fact that it's... it's it's education without an outlet. Now, he mainly is talking about careers and jobs, and business and so on. But uh, actually, we might take a broader view and say, right now, there's there's all kinds of things people could do with their knowledge they get from university. But there isn't really anywhere for them to direct that energy. There's no politics necessary on a big scale. There's very, there could be all kinds of things. But that is maybe what's missing. Um, but anyway, I'll shut up now and... Um, and we'll come to Connor. Hello, Connor. Hi, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I'm only about two thirds of the way through the book, but from what I've read so far, um, Gareth Central was, was was really was fairly spot on. Um, I mean, it, Sheila made the point about this sort of notion that seems to permeate to a degree in education that um, everyone should go to university, and, and I've seen that firsthand in in, in sixth form. Even in my own school, all, all year 13s are encouraged to apply through UCAS uh, to university, whether or not they, they indeed intend to go. And um, they're, they're great kids and so on, but, you know, they are fairly typical. And it would be a statistical aberration if, if they were all to go on to do these things and not do anything else. But they're, but they're very much encouraged to do so. And not just that, they're encouraged to apply to Russell Group universities, even though there's like hundred universities or something in, in, in the UK. So not only are they funneled towards this pursuit after they leave school, but to a particular segment of, of higher education. Um, and, and as I was reading the book, uh, I, I was drawn to um, the portions about uh, IQ testing and intelligence testing. So I found it quite useful um, thinking about, while I, while I sort of get the idea of um, 
uh, having the categories of head, hand, heart, manual work, care work, and uh, uh, you know, abstract mental work and so on. Um, I would be a little bit wary of, of of placing individuals into those categories. So while I'm absolutely happy for jobs or uh, or pursuits to be characterised as such, I'm a little bit wary of. And it's not an argument that Goodhart makes, but you know, Charles Murray's been mentioned in it, and you know, he very much would make those arguments. And I'm a little bit uncomfortable with those because I I wouldn't want to put a limit on human potentiality at any stage. And that's not to say that you know you don't have to be realistic, and you know, if if you have to work. You're probably going to work in one thing at least for a certain amount of time, but I'm just worried of how if we do accept these categories and we say we're going to place value on these other things, which I do support, is at what stage do we tell kids that oh well you're this kind of thing? And I you know haven't been on the receiving end of that. I did the eleven plus, and I do remember how in the final year of primary school, very much the internalised message was that you were either somebody who was academic or you weren't, and you were going to go off and do whatever you did, and. I, if if that's what these categorizations look like, I'd be a little bit wary of of, of them um, taking that form. Just one more thing then um, that I was thinking about is I'd mentioned a few, a few other members of the education forum, a book called The Cult of Smart by uh, Freddie DeBoer. And actually it, it treads quite, quite a bit of the same ground. And, and Gareth you know, mentioned that this kind of thing is in the air. He's coming from a, a, a Marxist perspective. He's an AFT member. That's the, the American Federation of Teachers. But he, he makes a very similar argument. He actually is interested in the, in and genetics and intelligence and so on. He accepts that there's a so many component to human variability, and he he makes quite a bold argument and says that if a school wants to, if a kid wants to drop out of school at 13, maybe we should have a system that allows them to do that. Now, my only uh, uh, sort of um, pushback on that kind of argument again, like I said, is okay. But how do we decide who those kids are at a certain age? I, I accept that we value lots of different things, but. When, when do we value it? Thank you. Thanks. And yeah, I think that's fair to say that Goodhart uh, does take it for granted, more or less, through his book that there are kids who are just academic and some who are not. Um, and, and it'd be good to hear people's views on, on, on that. Um, so uh, we're going to go to um, Alka next. Hello, Alka. Thank you. I've got to try to get my picture up. Uh, right. Oh, hang on. Sorry, not feeling so good at the minute. Okay. Um, I think. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Um, I'm just on the thing you just just asked Harley. The um. Oh my God, my brain's gone. No, I forget that. I'll stick to the points I was going to make. Like well, it's academic. That was. Oh right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I just think that's it, it's just silly, right? Because we don't, you know. We, teach, we have education, but I think, you know, my, from my point of view, we have education because we've got knowledge that is worth teaching, whatever that is, whether that's academic or vocational or whatever mixture, it's, it's not kind of, and then we find ways of making that knowledge understood, understandable to the kids, whatever the kids are, you know, we're not, we're not there in the business to sort out kids by personality or types as far as I can see I think we need to bring the focus back to what the the content but I'm thinking um, I was thinking about Shirley mentioned the equality of pa- the parity of esteem thing and it's really interesting to look at what happened in Britain around the late 1970s when um, there was one report that actually uh, Michael Young was uh, part of at the time uh, called the ABC uh, report and it very much tried to to bridge the gap between the vocational and the academic 
But what ended what it ended up doing was absolutely trashing both vocational knowledge and academic knowledge as well in the in in the kind of intellectual mush that in, ensued from that, and it and it never got anywhere. Um, and so that was very different to the kind of gold standard vocational education that's followed in Germany and France, which basically is had, I don't know if it's still the case. Shirley may know, but it was kind of organised around three main streams where you would have knowledge that was um, uh, taught in close conjunction with the specific industry or business that the, the, the vocational course was, was geared towards. And that would be on site or they would be, you know have special workshops and what, whatever in the universities. And then they would have another section that would be about the more, in, more academic knowledge, but still related to the vocation, to the job. And then another strand that was a purely like a general knowledge, a liberal education strand on the basis that the, the, they, were, they were teaching citizens as well as workers, the old Durkheim um, distinction. Um, so that seems a far more ro robust model of anything vocational. But like I said, I don't know if they still have it. But I think the, what, the thing that's really missing, I think, in a lot of discussion, Goodhart misses it as well, and we are here as well, and I think it's something related to what Sally picked up on. Sally, when you said that the relationships people form are so important at this at this time in their lives, and they are, they're the first set of relationships that they have as kind of young, independent, emerging adults. And um, I think here it's really interesting to see what's been happening at universities. As more and more people have gone into them, um, they've become, universities themselves have become directed away from intellectual endeavour and more towards inculcating values so that it is the case that when when employers are looking to graduates they are really kind of looking for a type of person and the type of person they're looking for is the person that's been thoroughly steeped in a set of kind of institutional values that we are now seeing played out as it's beginning to backfire in certain places in the culture wars and I think that's what that's why it's not just down to money, Sally, because the government has been quite happy to pay a lot of money for layers of bureaucracy and administration in higher education. And schools are under such pressure to value their performance according to how many people they get to university, the point Connor made, especially Russell Group or Oxbridge, um, irrespective of whether that's... Um, whether that that's suitable, you know, suitable for or even what the children want to do, really, it's so. I, I think you know that 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 new social function of the universities needs more attention. And on the question of valuing hand or head, I mean, I I don't know the answer, but I don't think it's just up to the something that is up to what schools or educational institutions do. I think it's a question of our wider society values. The range of talents that people have. Yeah, um, thank you, Alka. Uh, John Harris Hall, um, over to you. Oh, hi, thank you very much. Um, I think the book is a great book. Had it been about fifty pages long, I think it's been padded out with lots of data to make it a twenty quid tome. And this is exactly what he did in his last book. And I have to say, I think most people do. So it's actually quite difficult to pass down what the actual method method is, but. I come from a clinical background, and I've seen over 25, 35 years what you might call the, the, the classical hand and heart job of nursing, 
being transferred to a head job because now nursing is a graduate entry. And I'm not actually certain, having seen, you know, I'm so old, I've seen the difference there, whether the quality of nursing is better than it was 25 or 30. I'm not disparaging any nurses at all there. But I don't know how the nursing profession have allowed what I would call the academicization, another made up word, of their profession to have occurred. And I think I think Goodhart's basically turned around and said, yes, I think Michael Young was right in his dystopian. And I'm sort of saying, you know, all these years later after Michael Young's work, it's happening. But from a personal perspective and, you know, the clinical background I come from, I can't see how converting hand and heart jobs to head jobs. And now Goodhart saying, let's go back, has done anybody any good whatsoever, apart from probably deprive the nursing profession of lots of fantastic nurses who just didn't, for all sorts of reasons, want to go down that head pathway. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a very good point. And, and Goodhart does say, um, you know, it, it, it's, it, I mean, his, his, I think one of his, his key points is that, that it's not, you know, this whole shift to head education is not really about improving the knowledge of the people who, who are um, on the receiving end, but about providing, a, 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 you know, filtering people, providing a, a, a certificate that allows you to the keys to the door, so to speak. Um, but also at the same time, that the more people have that, the, the less value it has to get through to the other side, um, from a sort of economic point of view, if nothing else. Um, so uh, thank you, John. Um, Steve, please go ahead. Hello, Steve. Uh, sorry, I couldn't unmute for a second. Thank you. Um, I, I, I thought uh, Gareth's summary was, was great. I, I did finally plough through the book, but I agree with John, it's a bit long and didn't need to be quite as long. Um, but I'm really grateful for the summary. And I found the broad thesis of it, the main thesis of it, pretty convincing and pretty compelling in the main. Um, I was a little bit disappointed about how thin his stuff about the future was. It was very much about where we are and where we've been and how we got here, which is very, very interesting. But I was hoping the last few chapters would then say, and this is what we might do about it. And he kind of nibbles around the edges of that, but but not in a, he didn't try very hard, I don't think. I think he was maybe a bit tired or trying to get to a publishing deadline or something, because it does kind of fizzle out a little bit at the end. Um, so I, I wonder if anybody would like to, try to have a crack at this question i can't answer it and i've worked in education for a long time but what how would schools be different if we took on board his thesis about we've got the balance wrong between head hand and heart what would schools be doing not just a little bit differently because i don't think he's arguing for that he wants big change by implication and i just wonder how how schools might look different if we went down that road what would they be doing differently um one very, final very quick point. I agree with Sally. FE colleges at their best are brilliant. Um, absolutely. Having worked in one for a long time, they, they, I wouldn't get them mixed up with the slightly dodgy private training providers that Gareth was, was commenting on. I think they're not the same and you shouldn't perhaps tell them with the same brush. That's it. Thank you. Great. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll, I'll maybe, um, I will list a few of the things that Goodhart um, mentions as his solutions. I agree. I think they're a bit weak, but we'll come back to those in a little bit um, if Gareth doesn't uh, get there ahead of me. Um, interesting, quite, James, John, uh, James Woodhausen has answered uh, the question about uh, Maslow in the chat, if anyone wants to have a look in there. Um, and uh, also there's a discussion going about AI and uh, whether or not um, 
whether you know its role in, in the sort of the shift of uh, what, what society needs. And it's one thing that really struck me during the book, reading the book, is that um, Goodhart's account of sort of what uh, skills uh, the modern workforce needs is quite different to the, the 21st uh, century skills uh, lobby, for want of a better better word, uh, better phrase, um, who have typically argued that we should sort of, um, sort of stop teaching knowledge and uh, teach uh, just sort of creative uh, creativity and, and, uh, and problem-solving skills um, because all the jobs in the future are going to be ones where, you, where you're asked, you know, creativity and, and problem-solving is demanded of you. And it's a good heart makes the point that um, reality uh, right now, and certainly with the way things seem to be going, is that um, most jobs don't um, don't ask that of you, those things of you. And in fact, the, the percentage of jobs that aren't give you, as he phrases it, permission to think, is quite small, and always has been, and seems like it will remain that way. In fact, if anything, AI may take over more of those um, more of those sort of uh, roles at the moment that need some element of, of, of uh, thought. Um, see i guess but anyway, so um next up we have uh mo and then alex and then we're going to come back to gareth yeah i just wanted to ask a question really um because i haven't read the book yet although i read um the road to somewhere and i just wondered how much you think it is um the book is a thesis um that comes out of a conclusion rather than the other way around because it seems to me that one of the one of the things that Goodhart and a lot of kind of post-liberal or, or blue Labour commentators were thinking about around the Brexit divide and the anywhere and somewheres, the kind of loose correlation between leave and remain and uh, anywheres and somewheres was um, this different set of values. And this caused um, this caused a lot of post-liberal thinkers, I think, to be concerned about that. What, what Alka was talking about, that kind of a dichotomy of um these this seemingly distinct, uh, distinct set of um, values, and one of the things that was um, talked about um, by people like Michael American and people like that was the fact that this comes from the mass expansion of um, higher education and how that created one set of values compared to people who hadn't been, and because it was almost fifty-fifty that explained this kind of split value in society. So I just wondered how much. Goodhart started from that conclusion about values and how problematic it was that there's this kind of dichotomy of values and, and worked his way back uh, to pinpointing too much uh, perhaps on, or, on education. However, I also think that there is something in it in, in terms of kind of backing up what, what Alka said. Um, and, and there is, uh, certainly I, I taught at university, I taught a master's programme in cultural management haven't been a cultural manager for 25 years and not needed a master's in cultural management. Uh, I, I then was was teaching it and it seemed to seemed to me, it's very fascinating. I had to read it all myself before I could teach it because uh, I've never needed it in 25 years of doing the job. Um, but it did seem to me that, that it was trying to create an academic um, subject out of something that was actually just something you could just learn on the job. And what really, what I found sad about that experience I only did it for a couple of years but the, what I found sad about it is a lot of the students um, who came who paid to be on that master's course because they wanted to work in the cultural industries whether that's theatre or fil film or whatever is that they didn't have any they couldn't write an essay so really they shouldn't have been able to pass 
because they couldn't write they, they'd come straight you know they, they just didn't have that kind of progression but they went straight in at master's level um not that that they were marked down for that not that they weren't bright kids but um it was just a sense in which it was a it was a, it was almost a mickey mouse degree because you you couldn't fail i wasn't allowed to fail anyone i wasn't allowed to give anybody 49 when the pass mark was 50 i had to bump them up regardless of what i thought the essays and um and that's one one thing that sort of worried me about the quality of the master's degree that they would be getting at the end of it. But the other thing was, you know, I had 100 students in one class and many of them wrote to me years after saying they couldn't get a job in the industry because the industry was oversubscribed anyway. So you, you're kind of given these kids like master's degrees that probably don't really deserve because you're not allowed to fail them and then there's no jobs for them at the end of it so uh, that's a sort of personal experience but yeah just how much do you think his conclusion he was working backwards from a conclusion to create a thesis around it Gareth? Yeah thanks I should say I, I arrived at university not being able to write an essay and I left university not being able to write an essay got through by the absolute skin of my teeth I won't tell you what my grade was but it was pretty shameful um, but uh, uh, sorry Alex Standish um, and then Gareth thanks Harley um, so um, uh, yeah I really really enjoyed the book um, and, and David Goodhart's got some um, important things to say um, but he's not an educationalist um, and uh, if anything I think it's more of a uh, it points to a political failure, you know, a, a political failure um, which uh, probably has been going on for um, a few decades. Um, and it's the, this narrative of neoliberalism that, um, uh, you know, and, and which obviously the, the elite has sold us in relation to globalization, um, that knowledge economy, deindustrialization, um, and that, yes, we can all get, uh, you know, you should all go and get um, head jobs because. Um, that's where the, the economy is going. So it's a failure to prepare for um, a more diverse economy. And so, you know, where he's got a point, obviously, is, is that um, we're not valuing uh, wider um, jobs in society, which um, we, we should be. Um, and also it's a failure of, um, or it's certainly the, an instrumentalization of education to see, uh, you know, to, to um, treat education as... Um, as, as a solution to the uh, deindustrialization, if you like. And so, you know, I kept coming back to Blair's education, 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 you know, that sort of um, strikes at the heart of it. But obviously it's, it becomes a problem when that, that discussion comes into school, because if teachers are trying to sell, um, sell this neoliberalism, um, that, you know, that's the way to success, then obviously that only, as he points out, that works for maybe half the kids who get to university. But what about the other half that, that, there, there isn't a plan for them so um and i think um so uh, i think i think what schools need to be doing i mean schools schools are for education they're not for training um but uh, and I, I think that distinction is important and i think also you know in terms of education we wouldn't start from in terms of what children should learn in school we wouldn't start from ha um, head and heart we would start from what is valuable knowledge um, to learn, uh, you know, it, it, uh, yeah, to know what, what is the good knowledge we have to pass on. Um, so, um, but I think, um, you know, where, where this narrative is, is, is failing to um, work for everybody is, is and, and where schools I think need to do better is they've, you know, they have created um, a divide uh, where they are, 
you know, what they're selling seems to only apply to some children and not others. And so I think there needs to be um, a better way of selling academic, you know, education, what schools do to wider, to, to more children and showing them the value of, of knowledge, you know, in work um, and in society more broadly so that we can get more children learning and on board with learning. Um, but just, just finally, so I've made that distinction between education and training, but obviously at the same time, you know, schools do prepare children um, for life after after school. You couldn't just like have education and then stop, and it's like all of a sudden you got to figure out what you want to do. So there there has to be some kind of transition there. There has to be some kind of way in which schools show introduce children to well, what are the options beyond school, and let them um, figure out you know what they want to do. So you know, I, I think um, opportunities for vocational education should come in at some point, probably. You know around about 16 post 16 um but obviously the best people to do vocational education are, are actually uh, employers so you know they need to be um in, involved in that somewhere thank you alex um gareth have you uh, got anything more to say well i've always got something to say but whether it's of any use or not um is another matter but i mean i, I i'm really enjoying the discussion um because I, as I figured, it kind of goes off in in so many different directions. Let me just kind of, well, I want to pick up on a couple of things. First of all, I I, I need to say because I, I think it's important that that I I do draw a distinction between work based based training and, and FE. And I wasn't my comments about what's going on in work based training wasn't necessarily an attack on. Uh, on FE colleges, um, but Steve is absolutely right. I think when he says that the book, it, its biggest failing is that it doesn't really suggest um, ways forward. Uh, but I'm going to oh, and I'll address Mo's point. Um, that I think that's a I think that's a fair kind of criticism that uh, it starts with a conclusion, um, and then I don't know if if it's um, all that bad for him to track it back into the education system and work out what's going on there and what's causing the rise of this new elite. Given that, um, it's not just another example of let's track everything back to schools, any social problem, let's take it back to the schools. It's it's because the education system is the way of validating that elite, that he makes the point really clearly that it's universities that determine whether you're in or whether you're out. That makes, in my view, the education system culpable. And those of us who work in the education system need to work out what we think about that and how it might change. So on to Steve's question, which I thought was brilliant. How, how would schools be different? I think it's a little bit disingenuous to kind of say, you know, to sort of pick up Alex's Alex's point, really, and and... And say, well, we wouldn't really want to start with head, hand, heart. Um, yes, it's important that they get a kind of flavour of, of the vocational. Because I, I think where I find this really interesting is that it's the basis of a discussion, this book, to work out what it is about our curriculum at the moment that, that preferences abstract analytical thinking and no longer gives pupils a taste for other kinds of knowledge and I think that's a real issue um, uh, when I was at school 
you know, I did loads of things like metalwork and woodwork and, and, and loads of art lessons and all sorts of different things. Um, and that influenced me in all sorts of ways. In the end, I went off and did physics, okay? So I went and did a really highly abstract subject. But, um, but lots of the people at the grammar school I went to found in those kind of lessons a different way of interpreting the world. And they, and they would not find physics very interesting. Um, but they would find that the kind of knowledge one gets shaping a material and working out how things uh, physically move under their fingers and and uh, how much of um, their subjective attitudes to things can can influence uh, what happens it, th those kind of things I think are being um, denied to children these days and I think that's where Goodhart has a point that there is something that's really a miss with that because not only uh, does it lead to different kind of jobs it leads to different kind of perspectives on life and um, the importance say as he sets out in the book of, uh, of the idea of, of narrative in architecture you know very simply crudely put you're going to get one type of building if uh, if you 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 preference the cognitive analytical over and above other forms of knowledge and I really want to push that and say that that is what needs to come back into school education it was there before it isn't there now and datarism will increase credentialism will increase the instrumental purposes of of education will increase if we continue to marginalize that kind of understanding and I would blame it on the understanding of academic because what academic may have meant some years ago, I don't think is what academic means now. Back to Toby's point about basically we're talking about stuff like maths and, and maths and science, you know, and you're an academic kid if you can do those. And if you're not, well, you should be able to. It would be good if you have a taste of it. We don't really care what's happening to you in that curriculum. Yeah, thank you. Um, there's... I mean, it's, it's runs through this book. It's this sort of distinction between theoretical and uh, practical. And he does. There is. I think he does suggest at points that they've got a closer relationship, or they should have, than maybe they've, you know, that they have now. Um, he quotes this guy Matthew Crawford, who wrote a book called The Case for Working with Your Hands. And there's this lovely phrase which rang true to me about the intellectual satisfaction of handwork which you know is reflected in the fact that so many people are taking up cookery and you know and with their spare time as a way of giving sort of relaxing or giving some sort of external meaning to their life beyond work um but uh, so we've got a few um hands up um i also just wanted to pick up uh, and see what people want to say uh, this thing uh, uh, um about where value comes from, you know, that Goodhart's sort of, sort of slightly weak solutions for, you know, improving the situation, um, which, you know, just, I'll just, just tell you what some of them are. Um, they are things like, as far as education goes, they're things like, you know, more apprenticeships, T-levels, which are coming in anyway, I think, uh, requiring everyone in school to have learned at least one manual technical skill to a basic level, um, specialist uh, youth skill centres, 
um, charging older students lower tuition fees to encourage you know, learning throughout life and sort of moving to some kind of rotational model in which you know, work and education are rotated over the course of a career. Um, and, you know, they're all sound good, but, um, you know, how, how does value, value, what does valuing mean? Does it just mean we think, we think warmly about it? Um, the, 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 the heart and the, the hand uh, or, or, or does it how does it translate into action as Toby earlier mentioned the unions and one thing that really stood out for me is the absence of politics in the book although you know there's a lot of talk about the disaffection in politics but not much about what happens when politics isn't disaffected um, he does mention the unions uh, two or three times to say that you know x or y profession they're relatively well paid because the unions in the past fought for higher wages. Uh, but he doesn't explore at all whether that might be something we want to pursue or there might be some others. Um, you know, it, it seems very much value is conferred on people or should be rather than people fighting for their value somehow. Um, Charlie, can I can I just come come back on that? Because I think yeah. that's a really important point. Mo raised it and I didn't address it um, fully enough, which is that the... Um, the chapter on the diploma democracy, uh, which is where he's looking at uh, what kind of politics do you end up with if uh, if you have this kind of head orientated uh, education. I think that's actually one of the stronger uh, chapters in the book, and and it, it, it adds to this argument that maybe that's where the thing actually started and, and, it, and it grew out from there. Um, we just don't have time to kind of really go through that, but. Uh, he he comes up with this uh, idea of the epistocracy, you know. So when when people take political decisions, they're marginalised and written off if they haven't had the right kind of education. And I think that's a direct result of uh, of the kind of distortion we've got in the system at the moment. And I, that's you know a, a case where I think he he's he's onto something. The um, you know, the flim flammy stuff at the end of the book that you've just gone through there, uh, Harley, some of those ideas are pretty wacky and I don't think there's much in those. Um, but on politics, as you might expect, and taking Alex's point that he's not, a, you know, an educationalist, but he is involved in politics. Um, it's, a, it's a strong part of the book, but I think it has a really important message for educators. Great, thanks. Uh, so we're coming towards the end. So if you're putting your hands up, um, if you do want to speak, um, I'm particularly interested to hear anybody who wants to stand up and defend the, the current uh, university system. Uh, Sally spoke up briefly for it earlier, um, but so uh, you know, please, please do if you want to. If you think we're doing it, it's been done injustice tonight. Um, Sheila was uh, lined up to speak and has just disappeared. Um, Sheila, did you want to still have, have a go? No, or, I, it, do you want needing to draw things to a conclusion? No, go, go ahead, go ahead. All right. Um, just the point about what what would be different in schools. I think Gareth and others said something about this, but I mean, from age 11, you know, you, you, you work in education. We know how small an 11-year-old is. You know, isn't it about rounded human beings who have the chance to dabble and it's that dabbling, which, I mean, I'm a product of the comprehensive school system and I just have a sense of deja vu in terms of we've been here before through every decade. Um, remember the comprehensive versus grammar schools thing. I mean, my comprehensive school, I, I'm just like some others who have spoken, I did 
pottery rounders, metalwork, woodwork. I had sport every Saturday. I had three plays a term, plus orchestra and choir. And the school was open from six till nearly midnight every single day. And what I've seen in terms of my kids over the last 30 years, for all the talk and for all the sophistication of, oh, we're all going to go to university now and the intellectual arguments, the actual curriculum and the actual quality of the delivery of that curriculum. You can have a disagreement about whether you're into physics or English literature and what should it be, but the actual quality and time spent delivering that curriculum. So I'm happy if there's a liberal education that's rounded up to the age 16. If it's taught by enthusiastic, brilliant teachers who spend time with kids, and I'm happy if they do pottery and learn how to put fuses together but again it's there's something that has been lost in the quality of what we're talking about when we talk about different subjects um and and the um you know I think it was in the chat room about Britain not needing thinkers but transferable skills and um and again this is it's it's kind of very depressing isn't it um but if, if all of this has gone in great big cycles, you know, because we have had this debate before 50 years ago and 20 years ago, and now we've got another kind of discussion going on. It's kind of, well, is it a real discussion? You know, who who is listening in terms of this policy shift? If it's going to have to transfer into policy, then actually who's listening and who's reading that book and how do we shape it? Yeah, I think I, I'm... I get the impression Goodhart thinks not many people are listening, but it's it's but except maybe people are realizing like you know again Sally mentioned earlier students cottoning on that you know because they've heard from their older brothers or sisters or, or whatever who've been to university and didn't I, work out. Go ahead. Final, I do think with the current lockdown and the situation in universities um, for for many 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 young people, I think it's so diabolical at the present time. I think it's quite unpredictable what decisions they're actually going to make for themselves. Yeah, point. Uh, and, and Sheila, while you're there, I just wanted to pick up um, something you said in the chat, uh, or just to quote, what's wrong with being told and encouraged that an electrician or plumber is going to be a great job with a chance to earn lots of cash. It's a great life, never, but never presented in this way. Kids into construction presented as failures or victims. I, I just want to, just one counterexample to that, personal one, uh, which may just be the exception that proves the rule. I don't know, but my son's school, uh, they do nautical studies um, because they're near the river. And um, and they, uh, my son never shuts up about how much he's been told by his uh, head of studies that how much they're going to earn and how easy it will be for them to get a job once they, they stick with the nautical studies. But maybe that's not common. Um, so uh, last uh, chance, people to to speak. Um, I'm hoping James Woodhouse, who's been very uh, vocal, uh, uh, textually speaking, might want to want to contribute um, verbally as well. Uh, but in the meantime, we have Steve. Uh, over to you, Steve. Thank you. Um, I just want to come back to something Alex said earlier on. Um, I've, I hope I'm quoting you correctly. Schools offer education. I think we'd all agree with that. Um, but there's a question about what knowledge we should pass on. I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But 
I, I ought to have sourced this quote, but I don't. But th there's a kind of half-joking, half-serious point about education, which is that it's the stuff that's left after you've forgotten all the stuff you learned at school. That's not to say that school had no impact on you for the better. It almost always does. But the factual stuff that you memorise for exams, unless you go on to use it over and over again through your life, you forget it. I have no idea what the features of a glaciated valley are. I vaguely remember someone telling me what they were about 40 years ago. But not knowing that hasn't disadvantaged me at all. Um, I can't tell you what the chemical um, symbol is for various elements. Again, I learned them 40 years ago, but I never needed them. So I, 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 I'm not minimising or dismissing what you're saying. But I'm saying we do spend a lot of time teaching kids stuff that they just learn to get through an exam and in many cases never use or care about again. And often quite, it bores them in the process or stresses them in the process for no particular long term benefit other than the bit of paper that gets them, might get them into the knowledge elite that, that David Hart is talking about. Um, so I guess what I would say is that Schools are about education, but education is about getting people ready for what they're going to do for the rest of their lives, along with what their parents do and other people do as well. And if you interpret it in that much broader way, it opens the door to all sorts of things other than fact-rich, content-heavy memory tests, which need to be there. But not, I don't think they're the only thing that needs to be there. And we might want to think about some hard choices about which bits we dump to make room for some other stuff that will be really useful. Hard choices. Um, okay, thank you, Steve. Uh, and uh, Kevin Rooney, uh, hopefully you can unmute yourself. Maybe, maybe he can't. Kevin, you there? Can you hear me? Yes, go for it. Yeah. A great book, really interesting book. I don't know what I think about it, but it's an interesting, really interesting book that got me thinking and great introduction as well. Really enjoyed that, Garth. Can I think out loud about two things which I think I've changed my mind on in life? The first one is um, the question of meritocracy. And I thought it was really interesting um, the way that um, the book starts with Michael Young and the concept of meritocracy. And to cut a long story short, I, I've decided that I don't believe in meritocracy. I'm completely against it. I think it's a joke. And I think Michael Young was right. And I actually think Michael Sandel in his latest book is also cracked in that. It's an absolute con. And I think the, the issue and the problem that I have is that you're trying to wrestle with a book which is part about an education discussion, but it's part about a broader political, social, economic question. And I spoke to a few different people this week. One of them is my friend, and she earns 300 quid an hour. And she works in the city of London and she gets £1,500 a day. I spoke to a fellow I haven't seen in a while in the bakery the other day on Saturday. And he's an electrician working down at Euston Station on the HS2 line. And he's on £25 an hour and he's doing overtime. He's Saturdays and Sunday, he's doing all right. And then I, I know another woman and I don't know exactly what she's on, but I think she's on 9 or £10 an hour. And she literally works in an old people's home. And she was telling me a couple of different occasions about a couple of the people she looks after who are incontinent and have Alzheimer's and just cleaning the diarrhea of their bum and all the rest of it. And my simple point thinking out that is I don't accept that. I cannot accept those wage differentials. Now, the question is, you know, where is that to be addressed? To what extent is that a political economic question for society? 
And to what extent is that a question with an education? Because the bottom line is, whether we like it or not, I think schools have subordinated themselves, bastardized themselves, to be little more than engines of social mobility. And that is a serious problem. And I do smile also. By the way, I left school. I was in the bottom set at school. And I was ironically lucky. Two days a week, they sent us to technical college in what you call in England year 11, fifth year in Belfast schools. And I actually did electrical installation. And funny enough, I left school on the Thursday and on the Monday. I was lucky to get a job as an apprentice electrician, got my trade, uh, all the rest of it. And it took me around the world, that trade, bit of spark. And later on in life, when I came to London, I said, go to university, do a few degrees and become a teacher. But the point, the point I'm really trying to get at is this. First, the first problem is meritocracy for me and inequality effectively. And will you tackle that? I'm not quite sure. But coming back to the school situation, um, it's not that we write off a section of kids who we want to push towards a vocational route. We write all kids off intellectually. We, we put them on an absolute conveyor belt of exams. We absolutely have destroyed education in England. There are pockets of intellectual inquiry in schools, but the instrumentalist ethos, let me tell you, is robbing young kids who you might be, might be seen as the best academically in the top sets of intellectual stimulation because they've been taught to the exam. And so the $6 million question, and I don't love the kids that are maybe towards the bottom sets, they don't even get the pretense of intellectual inquiry and stimulation and triggering intellectual curiosity. So the question that the, it's funny how the book can throw up different things to different people, but what it throws up to me is how are we ever going to change the big picture politically in the outside world? But also for the, those of us in education, are you happy with how education is? Because I'm not. And then if you happen to think like me and a lot of people probably won't, how do we then move the discussion forward to try to change education? Or is that naive? Now, I, Alta earlier on, I think she mentioned, uh, I can't remember, I think she mentioned Durkheim. Look, even a little kid who does GCSE sociology can tell you about Durkheim and Weber and the sociology of education in, in relation to how schools filtered people and the apples and pears and how they had to have some people who would rule society, some people who would fill the banking jobs and the scientist jobs, and then there was the rest left at the bottom. Now, I know the schools have always been set up to an extent in that way, but I'm actually asking the question, is it possible that we can have a different conception of what we think meritocracy is in terms of our values and our moral and political and social outlook in broader society? And if we got, if we managed to do that, I think we had a, we'll have a far better chance of being able to reorientate schools towards a genuinely intellectual project for all kids. And when they get to the age of 16, or we can have a conversation about what age that is, by all means, we can let them go down different routes towards a vocational or an academic. Great. Thank you, Kevin. Um, so we have... Uh Chrissy Daz, then I'm going to make an announcement if no one else puts their hands up. And um, then we'll finish with Gareth. So, uh, Chrissy, what do you have to say? Am I on mute yet? Hi. Yeah. Uh, that was brilliant, Kevin, by the way. Um, 
Yeah, um, follow on from that. I want I want to just sort of share some of my own experience because I've been in working in the area of uh, design technology teaching in secondary schools for, uh, well, since the uh, mid to late 90s. And I have seen some changes and, uh, and, and other changes that were taking place at the time. Quite a few people have mentioned doing woodwork and metalwork in, when they were at school. Um, the way that it's changed is quite depressing in many ways, uh, especially over the recent changes in the last two or three years. Um, and the, the problem is that design and technology is a subject which is, they are attempting to make it in, into an instrumentalist subject, following Kevin's point about the instrumentalist ethos. Uh, but it is actually virtually impossible to do that because when you're learning about technology in society you're learning about all of the high-tech stuff the robots the ai the smart materials all of that sort of thing and then if you're attempting to combine that with practical skills in a workshop there is absolute disconnect between those areas that is something that um, as a particular subject area uh, design and technology has been wrestling with for some time and it seems to have um, completely missed the point uh, because the point is not that you should even attempt to make that connection between um, the technology in wide society, in industrial uh, modern society, and what you can do with practical skills in terms of your own cognitive um, learning development at all. You can't make that. Um, <clears throat> so I'm what I'm saying essentially is we need a sort of... a. a a vision of design and technology that brings the crafts back into it. You know, after it was woodwork and metalwork, it then became craft design and technology, and the craft was dropped. More recently still, the coursework aspect, which has been narrowed, um, made much, much smaller in the curriculum, uh, and it's been renamed NEAs, i.e. non-exam assessments which tend, tends to stress it's all about the examination and we've got this little bit on the side as well. Um, in some ways, I think that it's comparable to something like Latin, where by learning it, you are developing certain aspects of your um, how, how your brain works, but it doesn't necessarily translate as anything that you're ever going to use um, in your life subsequent to that. Um, so, yes, that's all I wanted to say, really. I was that's, hoping James would come in after me as well, so I won't be the last one. He's either gone or uncharacteristically shy, but, um, but yeah, I, I think that's a really good point. And the, the question then is, is, you know, how do we, how in a very instrumental world do, do we win the argument, persuade people to do that sort of, you know, to, just to, uh, to have that, uh, I'm about to think you're describing a form of education for its own sake. Um, you know, how do you, how do you win the argument for that um, when everybody wants certainty and wants to know what they're getting delivered at the end of the day um, or the school year? So, uh, okay, thank you, everyone. Um, we've run over a little bit, um, but I think it was very much worth it. I came in. I, I I've read the book a lot. Most of it makes sense to me. I agree with most of it, but I also find myself thinking, well, he's flagged up a lot of problems with things like meritocracy, as Kevin said. 
but I'm not quite sure what the answer is because, you know, the alternative is pretty horrible too, which was, you know, what we used to have, um, you know, where patronage and so on, we still have to a degree. Uh, but anyway, still lots to think about and, and you've all given me lots to think about, hopefully likewise the other way around collectively. So um, Gareth's going to take us out in a minute with his final thoughts. Just want to say uh, normally after everybody's spoken, um, this would be a meeting in central London, we'd be heading down the pub to carry on the conversation over a pint and some of you might even feel inclined to, to buy the organisers or speakers uh, a, a, a drink at uh, London prices. So uh, if you, as we can't do that tonight, if you'd like to donate the price of a London pint or even a bit more um, to the Academy of Ideas office, um, that would be much appreciated because they're the people who make all these events happen. This is uh, there's been all the Academy of Ideas education forum events, but there's probably been a, there's been running events uh, throughout the year, almost every week, if not more. Um, so uh, I keep providing a lot of intellectual stimulation for people. So um, Alex should be putting up, posting up the uh, uh, donate link in the site, or you can just go on to, in the chat, or you can go onto the Academy of Ideas site to see the big button there that tells you where to donate. If you'd like to hear about uh, future education forum events, please sign up to our mailing list. Again, that should be in the, in the chat, hopefully. Um, and uh, thanks once more to our speaker, Gareth. Um, let's uh, hear from uh, his final thoughts. Okay, everybody. Well, thank you very much for, for hanging around and uh, running over time. Um, <clears throat> uh, it's been a really, really good discussion as far as I'm concerned. And uh, as I said, I, didn't, I don't really know what I think about the book yet. My views are still forming, but all of your contributions have been just really really good so thank you um music dance theater woodwork metalwork um needlework um the practical work in science um across across all the sciences uh building relationships proper pedagogic relationships with the kids these are all things that are uh in in crisis of one form or another in schools they're largely not happening um and i haven't really heard any argument that wants to defend the intellectual values of education and education for its own sake i haven't really heard yet a convincing argument um, that wants to address that problem. But I think until we do address that problem, then 50% at least of what's in Goodhart's book uh, is going to become more and more the case. Uh, I think it's all very well to defend education for its own sake, but the moment you start talking about uh, the intellectual values that you want to see in school. I think you have to be very specific now about what you mean by intellectual values. And I think we need a definition of intellect that covers what's going on in the metal workroom and doesn't write it off as, as somehow vocational or not academic. Um, but, but when I hear the words intellectual or, voc or uh, academic, those are the kind of things that are not being talked about. 
those those kind of subjects that that I mentioned. And um, as far as building relationships goes, it's be, it's becoming more and more difficult for an enthusiastic teacher to foster a love of a subject in a young person in school. There's so much suspicion and regulation around it, and a lack of trust on all sides. Um, but even even that has become uh, difficult and problematic. So I really do think that thinking about the combination of head hand and heart in secondary education never mind what happens at university uh, is a really really important question for us all and i'm looking forward to hearing more people talk about how that can be achieved um without just trying to to use a few blanket terms that we don't really understand exactly what you mean by them Great, thank you uh, very, very much, Gareth. Um, if I've unmuted everybody, hopefully, so if we'd like to give Gareth a round of applause, please join in. Thank you, thank you very much. Brilliant. Thanks everyone for, right. your, thank, for taking thank part. Gareth. Thank you. Thank you. Happy Christmas, everyone. Thank Merry Christmas, you good guys. point. Christmas.